Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Gantworker, and I have the distinct pleasure of hanging and interviewing my friend, Dr. John Ratliff. John is a professor and vice chair of neurosurgery uh, at Stanford University. He's the departmental quality officer and co-director of the spine and peripheral nerve uh, surgery division. Um, and he's also chairman of the uh, Joint AANS and CNS Washington Committee. Um, we are here today to discuss becoming a physician advocate and how we can better outfit people um, in terms of their uh, developing a toolkit and being able to better advocate for ourselves and for our patients. John, thank you for taking the time today. It's a pleasure to see you. No, fantastic to be part of this, Ryan. Thank you so much for like, having me. I really appreciate it. I would say like a uh, former chair of the Washington Committee, like Russell Onser, near and dear to like the CNS, just took over that like position. So I left it in like able hands. Ex excellent. Yeah, Russell will do a great job. So I should probably say immediate past president, but thank you for your service. <laughs> no, I'm mean, excited to be part of this. And like, um, I mean, the entire point with advocacy is trying to keep as many people engaged, as many people involved as possible. We are a very small specialty, which is not that many neurosurgeons out there. So the more individuals that we can get involved and engaged, the better we're able to advocate for our patients. I agree. I think that's a critical part that I think we can all develop uh, in terms of a skill set. And it actually dovetails nicely to my first question. Can you tell me, um, and for those of you who don't know, John uh, came from a, a very small town in the eastern part of Kentucky uh, and is a scrappy, intelligent, and, and very kind person who has done very well for himself and for uh, neurosurgery at large. Can you, John, can you kind of talk about your journey from where you grew up and, and, and coming up through college and med school and residency? And can you sort of draw a line between where you grew up and your value system and, and sort of how you were raised or, or your experiences and just sort of, can you connect the line between that and where you are right now and advocating for, for neurosurgeons and our patients? Wow, that's a big question. Um, so I grew up in Appalachia, like kind of middle of nowhere, back in the country, little like the nearest kind of crossroads was called Sharky. The nearest like post office was like Hillsboro, which is like about a 20, 30 minute drive from where I grew up. Like I was literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, very close to where Ed Oldfield, who I think is from Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, grew up. And there have been a number of neurosurgeons that have come out of Kentucky. Um, but growing up in this kind of rural, like rustic environment, there weren't a lot of opportunities evident to um, achieve professional success. And I think like, the local physician was really revered like in our community. So becoming a physician, becoming a doctor was something that was um, very attractive to me from a young age. 
And then as I moved through undergrad, was able to go to um, Tulane Medical School for med school. I got exposed to neurosurgery in the group there and exposed to Charity Hospital and just absolutely fell in love with it and became um, just fixated on neurosurgery and eventually on like spine surgery. It's kind of like my um, passion or what just really excited me, really like made me um, invigorated and, and enthusiastic about going to work every day. Now, transitioning that to advocacy, that's like, that's a whole other kettle of fish. I I've, I wanted to ask that question because it's interesting how, where we grew up, how we grew up and our life experiences, some of them play into your philosophical way that you approach, um, you know, for lack of a better term, fighting for ourselves and for our patients. So do you, do you think sort of coming from a rural area where there's not a lot of access, do you think that affected your feeling, your, your gut that you had to sort of you know, advocate for yourself because they really you had to advocate for yourself in order to move out of that space and move into a professional career. And do you think you took some of that with you? Do you think you took some of that into your professional life with you? And that's maybe how you got here? That's a really interesting like point and interesting question. I mean, it's not kind of path of least resistance to go from Appalachia to like Stanford. So there's a lot of like advocating for myself and like um, being focused on achieving success, both in medical school and residency and C, and then in my professional career, where I was able to lend my voice to kind of my own advancement. And I, frankly, I mean, that's a necessity. Like, we've all done that to be able to achieve what we've been able to achieve in our lives. Um, I think back on my David Klein, who was my chair at LSU in New Orleans when I trained. And like one of the things that he really imparted on us or imparted on like all of his trainees is that we are very fortunate to be neurosurgeons and very fortunate to be able to do kind of what we do. Like we're lucky to have our jobs, to have our position, to be able to like do what we do for our patients. And part of that really imparts a debt and you really need to give that back and you really need to be kind of paying that forward to your students, to your trainees, to your patients. You have to be able to acknowledge how fortunate you are to do what you do for a living. But then also realize that that imparts upon you like uh, a necessary um, requirement, essentially, that you give that back, that you provide that back to your patients, you provide that back to like, um, your trainees. I mean, that's why I stayed in academics for like my entire career. It's why I'm like program director at Stanford. It's the idea of like developing that next generation and you're able to accomplish so much through helping the maturation of other surgeons and helping other surgeons kind of develop their skills and um, go from being, you know, raw interns to being accomplished surgeons, which we're fortunate enough to be able to see in generation after generation of like physicians. Um, so part of being an advocate is that, like the training, the giving the time and the effort back to preparing the next generation. But then there's an entirely different world of like restrictions that can be placed upon us, limits that can be placed upon our practices, which impacts us as an inconvenience, 
but impacts our patients in a much more vital, much more like painful like fashion where we have to deal with a prior off, it's like a headache. A patient gets their surgery delayed because of a denied prior off. That's like a cataclysm. They're like, you know, maybe they're not surgery is not going to get covered at all. Maybe I'm not going to get to have this operation that my doctor says I need because I can't get it approved through my insurer because of this, that, or the other issue. So part of advocating is, again, protecting our specialty, frankly, protecting the capability for us to do what we do to provide the services that we provide for our patients. Um, I always think about my kids. I mean, God forbid they go into neurosurgery. Hopefully it's going to be a um, viable career and being a physician is going to continue to be a viable career option for like bright youngsters coming up through like the educational system. But more importantly, it's for our patients. They're the ones that like have the least um, individual power in these challenging environments. Now, collectively, they have tremendous power, but the individual patient is really hard for them to make their voices heard to like a giant entity, like an insurer, or like an Aetna, to like any of these players within the system. And then we as physicians have to do what we can to like help and do what we can to um, empower our patients to both advocate for themselves, but also kind of step in and advocate for them to make sure that they're, um, their rights, the things that they need, the services that they deserve are protected. That was a very long-winded answer to your question. I'm sorry. You dovetailed it beautifully. Uh, and the follow-up to that is, you kind of touched on this, was uh, how, it's almost like you read my questions. It's uncanny. How do you view your duty toward creating future physician advocates? Uh, and how are you advancing that mandate? Because I'm going to use the word mandate because that's what it sounds like you're talking about. It's like an obligation, right? A mandate. How do you move that mandate forward at Stanford? In other words, how are you imbuing this besides the neurosurgical training, how to do a craniotomy, how to put in a pedicle screw, yada, yada. What are you doing amongst your residents and trainees and fellows to sort of teach them that this is an important skill that you're not going to take on the boards, but you're going to sure as you know what, you're going to have to have to learn how to do it, you know, as when you come out and start practicing. Yeah, so great question. Part of it is just learning aspects of the system. Like, I don't know if I'd ever heard of what prior authorization like even meant when I was in residency. It was like just like some sort of alien terminology that other people like dealt with. But then when you're out in practice, you realize those other people means you. You're the one as a practicing physician who is going to have to do that MD to MD like peer review. Um, and really just telling them about that. The other big way that you get um, trainees and uh, young physicians involved is by getting them involved in our national organizations. There's a CNS leadership like group that's just fantastic for QI efforts, for getting um, young neurosurgery residents and young faculty members involved in leadership opportunities. There's a Council of Neurosurgical Societies uh, Resident Fellowship Program, which is a fantastic way for residents to get exposure to just how many challenges um, confront practicing neurosurgeons. And here in California, we got the California Association of Neurological Surgeons, like resident board members, where we 
invite four residents to attend our board meetings, get involved in our state neurosurgical society. Um, and our residents are crazy busy. They are doing so much already and there's just so much they have to learn to be prepared to get out and become practicing neurosurgeons. It's really difficult for them to find the bandwidth to learn socioeconomics, especially when within their residency, like it's just say, hey, it's not on their board exam. Like it's not maybe prioritized by their GME office, but when they get out into practice, it's something they absolutely positively must have to effectively advocate for themselves in contract negotiations and also to effectively advocate for their patients in policy issues. So to a certain degree, I think it's providing opportunity, providing a plethora of different opportunities to learn socioeconomics, to kind of learn advocacy, to learn the ins and outs of the system. Um, and then for the individuals that develop interests or are excited about this, really being able to kind of help them take their first steps towards becoming effective advocates for our specialty. So really, it's kind of like uh, catch as catch can. They're just really trying to survive residency and try not to fall asleep at the wheel when they're driving home. But it's it's more really trying to maybe small bits and and these other opportunities outside that that they can still sort of take advantage of, really giving that to them. That's an excellent answer. And that, again, um, really transitions well. And I want to step into sort of talking about people who 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 are out in practice now, and how do you encourage, having been president of the Washington Committee chairman, I should say, how do you encourage those in neurosurgery who view advocacy as unimportant, and how do you change their view and, and convert them into being involved? For instance, people been in practice for 15, 20 years and just view as this giant monolithic system that we can never change. Uh, burnout is not just a thing we're taking care of patients, but you also get advocacy burnout where, you know, we'll touch on this a little bit later, but how do you get people to care about becoming physician advocates themselves? Do you have like um, a... I, it's a great question. It's a great question. And it is, um, I think it's, it's a deep question too. Like there's a, many layers to that. When I was young, in my career, I didn't really see this stuff as being important at all. I just didn't see this as having like that much impact on my practice. I didn't really see it as having that much impact on my professional standing. I didn't see it as being like anything that meaningful for my patients. And as I recall, like even going back to when I was in Chicago and like as I moved and transitioned to Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia, I started seeing many more patients who were having surgeries decline by like their insurer. And I just started seeing like, you know, that wasn't impacting me because it's easy for a physician to find another patient. It may not be easy for a patient to find another surgeon. And if they're declined by their insurer, and if that surgeon isn't going to step up to help them, then the patient kind of left without a voice and left kind of out in the cold. They may not be able to get the services or the um, treatments that could help them. Um, and that's where I started realizing that advocacy is almost a necessity. And we go into this hopefully with the desire, the, um, the dedication to kind of improve the lot of our patients. 
and to be able to like do a job where we're going to like financially do very well, but also by providing a lot of value and by really helping our patients. And advocacy in my mind at its most basic level is accomplishing exactly that. But putting energy, putting effort, putting time, putting your expertise, putting your um, your at least some small part of your dedication into like helping like patients writ large, not an individual patient, but into like society as a whole, into all patients. And in my space, at least all neurosurgery patients. So I think it's part of just, and it is frustrating. And there are like a number of times where we don't accomplish all of our goals. And burnout's a real thing. I guess you point out, there's burnout in advocacy too. But you got to fight the fight. You got to be there stepping up and like going to the plate to try to help our patients. And I think it's part of our, our again, the debt that we owe for being able to do what we do. That's excellent. Um, with the recent setbacks, you know, peppered, uh, into our smaller victories, and and specifically, I'm talking about, you know, the um, the uh, victories of uh, the Texas Medical Association and against the No Surprises Act being improperly enforced to uh, the Medicare cuts, which have prompted um, a lot of rancor amongst practicing physicians, some who have now decided to retire and to say to heck with this to people dropping Medicare, physicians dropping Medicare altogether. Um, and now it's become a physician uh, patient access issue. Um, how do you keep those of us uh, in the rank and file of the advocacy, really the advocacy phalanx, how do you keep them focused and how to keep up the push for our vocation, our vocation and our patients? In other words, a lot of people I talk to you know, that they say, what's the point? Because for every victory we get, we get three more setbacks, significant setbacks. So how do you kind of keep them invigorated? What do you say, or what do you kind of have them visualize to keep them pushing? Uh, so I, Katie Rico, like Russell now on the Washington committee, they do a very effective job in terms of outreach, education, and letting physicians know what's going on. But you make a great point. There are so many forces arrayed against us that it does become like challenging. Like the No Surprises Act, like at the last Washington Committee meeting, um, where I was hearing from my neurosurgeons in New Jersey that they are facing substantial cuts from their insurers based on that. Because if they choose to go out of network, after the No Surprises Act, with the way that that has been implemented by the Biden administration, they revert to like Medicare as like the ceiling for like how they're going to get paid. So the insurer has very little impetus to negotiate. And that implementation is just, that's not the act. That's how the legislation is being executed and put into regulation. But the regulatory structure built off the legislation is really not following the spirit of the legislation at all. And that's where we have to like keep pushing and pushing and pushing against that. 
as Texas Medical Association is wisely done with their lawsuits, which AAS and CNS has supported, which the AMA is supporting. Like, but you're right. Like, to a certain degree, you can feel as an individual, there's nothing you can really do to move the needle on this variety of different, um, again, headwinds that like we face as like practicing physicians. But the closing question was correct as well. Like together as a phalanx of like neurosurgeons all pushing in the same direction, uh, we got a lot of power. And by raising our voice together, by having our Washington committee and our national organizations involved, by supporting state medical associations when they are advocating in a space and in a direction that we agree with, by pulling together, we can get a lot done. And frankly, if we don't do it, if we're not active, I mean, God help us. Like, Lord knows where we're going to end up. You brought up um, sort of the, I think, the most important conclusion, which is, you know, there's an old saying, if I am not for myself, then, then who will be? And I think we should add to that, if we're not for our patients and we're not for ourselves, who else is going to be? Um, do you think um, the future of neurosurgery will be determined by the whims and, and actions of administrations? Or do you see a time when we'll have more uh, competency, more ability, more agency to affect policy in a positive way for our patients? Um, in other words, is there ever an end in sight or do you feel like we're just going to have to keep struggling through this? And if so, what is the ultimate goal of, of advocacy for our patients? Are we trying to achieve a goal or is this going to be an ongoing thing? Like, for instance, someone comes in and said, John, I want to get involved in advocacy. I want to get involved on a local level, maybe a state level, maybe a federal level. But ultimately, what is my goal? Like, what are we trying to achieve or what does victory look like or if at anything at all? So I wouldn't frame it as victory, like one day we're going to be done and it's all over with and we'll never need to fight like another battle. It's not like that at all. This is an ongoing process. It's ongoing challenges for younger individuals who want to get involved or even older practicing neurosurgeons who want to get involved. Step one, really learning. It becomes kind of like residency. You don't come in as an intern and do like baths or tip aneurysms. You come in and do like the basic stuff. You'll learn the systems. You'll learn how these systems integrate with each other. You develop your skill set as an advocate. And then at least within the Congress and within the AANS, as you become more involved in the councils of state neurosurgical societies as well, you develop greater and greater responsibility. And the good thing about getting involved with advocacy is that you're always going to have work to do. So there's always going to be additional asks for your time. And if you're willing to provide free labor to people like me, we'll be very happy to take as much of that free labor as possible. Because it's, it's, it's not a battle to be won. It is an ongoing challenge. And frankly, it's not a battle. I really don't think that like the like regulators running CMS have anything against like CMS beneficiaries. Like their hearts are in the right place too. Like they want to do right. They just have to be kind of directed. And 
of fashion that again respects and acknowledges the need of neurosurgical patients. And again, dovetailing on what your point, the only way that's going to advocate for our patients is us. Like we've got to be the ones stepping up to like support our patients, to defend our patients, and to help our patients receive the care they need. I agree. And I would um maybe see if you agree that um advocacy is not really political at the end of the day. Would you think that regardless of who's in charge of the White House, what party is in control of Congress, this is not a battle that's going to, this is not a uh, a struggle or a negotiate, an ongoing negotiation that's going to stop regardless of who is in charge uh, of the White House or, or Congress or the Senate? Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, this is not like a Democrat or Republican-like issue. Like these issues transcend political affiliation. So we have Democrat neurosurgeons involved in advocacy, Republican like neurosurgeons in advocacy, like independents. Like it's it's not a party line issue, and it's also not an issue that's going to go away with any kind of transitions nationally with regards to whatever party happens to be in charge. Like these challenges will continue to confront us regardless of. Um, what party is in control of the House and the Senate. So really, if someone's interested in advocacy, and I'll sort of wind down with this, if someone's interested in advocacy, they don't have to be a registered Republican. They don't have to be a registered Democrat, registered independent. They can be any political party and affiliation. There's always room at the table for people, no matter their political stripe. No, 100%. I mean, our primary constituents are our patients. They're not our Republican patients, our Democrat patients, our independent patients, they're our patients. Like, we don't care about their political affiliation. Similarly, like we're not going like, to play sides with regards to political affiliation like nationally. We're there like supporting our patients. And therefore, we work with Democrats, we work with Republicans, we work with um, everyone who shares our goal of advocating and improving the lot of our patients. John, I want to Thank you so much for taking the time away from your practice, away from your family, away from your free time for spending it with me and, and talking with us. And, and thank you so much, John. Well, Brian, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I hope this is a, a benefit for the CNS. Well, thank you.